You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. John Wesley had a problem. The problem began early in life, long before he became the founder of the Methodist movement. And the problem caused him a certain level of fear and anxiety. He was anxious about the prospect of standing before God and afraid of dying, because if he died, he would have to stand before God. And he wasn't really sure how that would work out for him, even though he was raised in a Christian home, even though he was ordained a minister in the Church of England, even though he'd been a missionary to North America. He still wasn't confident of the outcome if he had to meet God on any single day. He was fearful, deeply fearful of that prospect because he wasn't sure that God loved him. So he did things. He did things to try to increase that sense of assurance. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in that place where you've said, you know, I'm not, I I mean, I I hear the preacher say God loves me. I hear the Bible say God loves me. I don't always feel that way. So maybe I can kind of do a little more to help some people out. Maybe I can be a little nicer. Maybe I can, maybe I can kind of do some stuff. And God will like that. I can feel better about myself and have more confidence. So Wesley, that was kind of his approach. So he engaged in ministry with those in prison. And he went to serve and give money to the poor. And he'd wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew and pray for hours before he went to breakfast. Because he wasn't sure God loved him. The problem he had is something I like to call Jesus and. Fill in the blank with whatever's relevant for you. It could be different for all of us. It wasn't that Wesley didn't love Jesus. It wasn't that he didn't have some trust in Jesus. It was that he didn't trust Jesus alone and was consistently trying to add something to the work of Christ. Yes, Jesus loved me. Yes, Jesus died for me. But I've got to do this. Jesus and ministry with these folks. Jesus and giving money to that ministry. Jesus and X number of time praying before I go to breakfast. And he did those kinds of things to try to make himself feel more secure. But none of it worked. Now, Wesley was not the first one to struggle with the problem of, what was it called? Jesus and. Wesley wasn't the first one to struggle with this problem, and he certainly wasn't the last Anytime you hear someone say something like, well, I could never go to church because of the things I did, that means we're dealing with the problem of Jesus and. Because it means I've got to get something right myself. I've got to overcome something in my past. I've got to make amends for something before I can be acceptable to God. What's the problem called? Jesus and. 
So Wesley wasn't the first. He isn't the last. He wasn't the first because we see the problem crop up in the pages of Scripture 2,000 years ago. So Paul writes to the Galatians a couple decades after Jesus was raised from the dead. And one of the things he's dealing with is the problem of Jesus and. Now, they weren't dealing with it the way Wesley was. Their and was something else. Their and wasn't ministry with the poor. A lot of folks were eager to do that. Their and, some of them anyway, not all of them, there was a faction. Their and was Jewish ritual, circumcision, and obedience to certain aspects or all of the aspects of the Jewish law. Now, we haven't had that debate, I don't think. Folks aren't coming in saying, yeah, you can be a follower of Jesus, but you got to get circumcised too. Like that's, things have moved on, and that was a first century debate that's kind of foreign to us. But the problem, the underlying problem, is still around. What have I got to do in order for God to accept me? Yes, Jesus loves me, but what do I have to add to that work? What do I have to add to his love? So Paul wants to deal with that problem because he knows how dangerous it is. It's dangerous for Wesley. It's dangerous for us. It's dangerous for the Galatians. So to counter the problem, Paul draws his readers' attention, whether it's first century readers or 21st century readers, or in Wesley's case, 18th century readers. He draws their attention, all of our attention, to Jesus. And he draws our attention to the beauty of Jesus and the kindness of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus, the death of Jesus and, and the resurrection of Jesus and the life that Jesus offers, the, the sufficiency, the beauty, the perfection, the glory, the matchless majesty of the person and work of Christ. Paul says, look at Jesus. Look at His faithfulness. Look at the one who does something for you that you cannot do for yourself. Look at him. Because Paul understands if you want to get away from Jesus and you've got to get to Jesus alone. The solution for Jesus and, whether it's 1st century Galatians, 18th century English priests, or 21st century American Methodists, the solution is Jesus alone. We could put it this way. Focus on Jesus. This is... This is the thing Paul wants us to see. He wants us to see Jesus in a new light so that we can then live a new life. The faithfulness of Christ alone makes it possible for all of us to depend on Christ alone. His faithfulness is the only thing that is a sure foundation for our dependence on Him, our trust in Him, our faith in Him. I'm going to use that kind of language interchangeably today. Dependence, faith, trust. Sure and certain, only He can do something for me. No one else can do it. I can't do it for myself. Faithfulness of Christ alone makes it possible for all of us to depend on Him, Jesus, alone. Now, this comes in the context of conflict in Galatians. It's what I like to call an apostolic throwdown. Uh, if you didn't get quite the, the magnitude of this, the way the NRSV translated, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. I prefer to translate a little more 21st century style. 
Paul is basically saying, when Peter showed up, I got in his face because he stood self-condemned. He was engaging in hypocrisy, Paul says, so I opposed him. What was the issue? Well, last week, he would, Peter's a good Jewish boy, last week, he would eat with non-Jewish people. This week, the heavy hitters from Jerusalem showed up. These are the guys Paul calls the circumcision faction. Guess the, what they wanted for you. And now Peter won't go sit down at the table with non-Jewish followers of Jesus. Hypocrite, right? So Paul gets in his face. And you might be thinking, like, what's the big deal? Because... Like half the time we're eating in the car anyway, right? This is one of those places where first century, 21st century life is a lot different. Like for us, meals are like, man, I got to work lunch in somewhere. I've got a busy day or I've got, what are we going to do for dinner? We should have had an hour ago because the kids have got ball games and we're just kind of rushing and like we don't even sit down at a table very much, let alone worried about who we're sitting at a table with. But in the first century, When you sat at a table with someone, you were cultivating a very, very, very deep bond. Like this was a, we are a part of the same thing. We're a part of the same family. We're a part of the same culture. We're a part of the same religious institution, the same social world. And so oftentimes, Jewish people and non-Jewish, well, the non-Jewish people probably didn't really care. The Jewish people are the ones with the scruples. Like, we're not going to sit at a table with those pagans. Notice what Paul calls them a little later. He says, we're Jews by birth, not Gentile. Remember what he said? Sinners. So it's not like, not just Gentiles. Gentile what? Gentile sinners. They're outside. They're far from God. They're pagan. They worship false gods. They worship idols. They, They engage in all sorts of inappropriate, immoral behaviors from Paul's perspective. So there's this, there's this long, big distance between Jews and non-Jews. And they, they would wall themselves off to protect their culture and their sense of identity as a means of faithfulness to their God. And so Peter, remember Peter's the guy in Acts who's one of the first people to engage in ministry outside of the Jewish world. And he's one of the first people to learn that the gospel is for the nations as well as the Jews. Has that vision where the sheep comes down out of the sky and he's told to take and eat all these unclean animals. And he's like, "Ah, I can't do that. And the point wasn't the menu. The point was the time has come where God is opening up his family to the nations. The people who were not clean ritually now can come in. So Peter was one of the first ones to kind of make the case for the inclusion of non-Jewish people in the Christian community. Like that was, it wasn't a given immediately that people like us could be a part of this movement. Peter was the first one to make the case. Paul jumps on board and makes it his life's work. And then Peter walks it back. Kind of a political move, right? They kind of flip-flop. It's like, 
you know, when I'm in this room, I'll say it this way, but when those guys from that party show up, I'm going to flip-flop over here and say it a little bit differently. No, I didn't do that. I wouldn't do that. That's the kind of thing we're dealing with here. That's why Paul says, I got up in his face. It's way too important because the implication is, here's the implication. If Peter won't sit down with somebody of a different ethnicity, Greek, Roman, Scythian, whatever. If Peter won't sit down at a table with them, he is implying with his actions that they're not a part of whose family? God's family. They trust Jesus. They love Jesus. They've received the Spirit. They've been baptized. They've been incorporated into the community. They've devoted their lives to the Lord. Peter says... I can't eat with people like you. The implication is, you're not right with God. The implication is, you're not right with God. And that's why Paul brings up this word that he repeated five, six, seven, eight times. Anybody remember what it was? Justify. We have a problem in English that they didn't have in the Greek language. For us, all the words that start with just and all the words that start with right, think about that, like righteousness, justification, judgment kind of language, all of that in Greek had one word for both options. And so if Peter is saying by his actions, you're not right with God, the implication is you are not justified. Now, you might be saying, hang on, preacher, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. What even is this justification thing? And I know it's kind of one of those big theology words. Occasionally, we get a little worried about the big theology words. The thing is, it's also a Bible word, an eight times in about three verses Bible word, and we got to deal with that. So it's not as complicated as it might seem. Here's the way it works. What is justification? It comes from the Hebrew law court. If you flip over to Deuteronomy 25 this afternoon, you'll read something like this. If two people get into a conflict or one person has a complaint against another, then they go before one of the kind of overseer, judge, some, some authority, somebody in the area who's going to hear the case. There's no jury in a Hebrew law court. There are no attorneys. You might think, wow, that's nice. Uh, there's no, like, like nobody's making big bucks trying to run motions and things like that. Like that's not happening. You got the judge, the plaintiff, and the defendant. His cow ran through my fence and ate through my, ate my grass or something. I don't know, right? Whatever it is. There's a complaint. Something happened. And the judge would hear both cases. Here, let's hear the complaint. Let's hear the defense. And then they would weigh the evidence and then they would come back and they would say to whichever one they thought had the better case, you're in the right. Now, what words did we say in English connect with right words? Just words. So, you're in the right is the same thing as justified. It's like saying your case is justified. Your complaint, if it's the, the complainant, your complaint is justified. If it's the defendant, like, no, 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 that's not the way it went down. It was... This is how it happened. It was, he's the one who didn't repair the fence, right? Then the judge would say to the defendant, your defense is justified. 
you're in the right. Your complaint is justified, your defense is justified, whichever one it may be. Pretty straightforward, right? That's not complicated. So Paul grabs that and says, you know, this is a really helpful way to talk about one of the ways God shows his grace to us, right? Because one of the ways we can talk about the way we relate to God is God as judge. Scripture talks about God as a judge. He's the judge of all things and all people. And we stand before him. And the reality is we stand before him, Paul reminds us here, as transgressors. We're not justified. You take my whole life into account, or any of our lives into account, we don't deserve his favor. We've broken his laws. We've violated his commandments. We have transgressed. We are not in ourselves in the, in the right. Jesus comes and behaves faithfully. Jesus comes and honors God with the whole of his life. God says to Jesus on the day of his resurrection, you, my son, are justified. That's the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 4. The resurrection of Jesus is God finding in his favor and overturning the kangaroo courts that they ran in Jerusalem that day. And Jesus is raised from the dead, justified. Then Jesus comes and takes hold of us through faith, through trust, dependence on him, trusting him to do what none of us can do for ourselves. Only he can do it. And he joins us to himself. And when he joins us to himself, the thing Charles Wesley said at the end uh, of one of his hymns, all in him is mine, becomes true. He takes me, joins me to himself. And everything that's true of him, he shares with me. And remember, he's justified. God has found in his favor. He's been faithful. He's done what's right. And he says, O'Reilly, I'm going to share that with you, brother. I'm going to share that with you, sister. All that's mine is yours, including my verdict. You're justified. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that transgressors are so beloved that God would show up in a body, live a fully faithful human life, and then share it, His favor with us. Sinners. The doctrine of justification, which Paul repeats numerous times in the span of a few verses, is simply the doctrine that says once Jesus takes hold of you, God says, I forgive you. You're in the right. You're justified. The court finds in your favor. You're forgiven. You're part of the family. That is accomplished by the faithfulness of Jesus. Paul writes these words. 
verse 16, we know that a person is justified not by works of the law. Remember, you've got some folks in the area who are saying, hey, look, you know, and this, this is crucial, remember this. They weren't saying, forget Jesus, get circumcised. They were saying, Jesus is great. Worship Jesus, trust Jesus. Oh, and by the way, go get circumcised. Jesus and. They weren't saying, Jesus or don't eat shellfish. That's one of the rules in the Old Testament. They weren't saying, Jesus and these sorts of dietary regulations. I mean, that's what they were saying. They weren't saying Jesus or. They were saying Jesus and. Follow the menu, people. Jesus is great. Like, they weren't criticizing Jesus. They weren't saying, like, like, it's not, for them it wasn't either or. It was Jesus and. And Paul comes along and says, you've missed it. Those things are great, but they serve a purpose. And their purpose is to identify my failure. It's more of a diagnostic thing. Like, like the law says, here's how much help you need because you cannot accomplish this on your own. And Jesus comes along and says, help is here. And so Paul says, here's the thing. We've got Jesus who shows up. And it's not Jesus plus anything I might do to show what a great person I am or how much I can make my life count for the standard. It's Jesus all by himself. Like, he's perfect. Nothing can be added to him. Nothing can be brought in addition to what he's already accomplished. His work is done, and it's perfect, and it's beautiful, and it's complete, and it's sufficient, and I have nothing to offer in addition to it. I can only receive the gift that he offers me, the gift of himself, the gift of his justification. And so Paul points to that reality. You may have noticed this faith in Jesus language shows up again and again. You may have noticed you have a footnote that sometimes when it says the faith in Jesus Christ, there's a footnote that some translations say we could render this the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The Greek's actually kind of ambiguous, and scholars have spent the last 30 or 40 years arguing about which one it is. If you're interested, I can give you a bibliography later. Don't expect I'll get much takers on that, but it's out there if you want. And here's the thing. For Paul, it's both. We're saved because Jesus is faithful. We're justified because he did what was required. He did. He was faithful. He loved us and gave himself for us. That's his faithfulness. That's his obedience. That's his not my will, but yours be done for us. That's what it looks like to love us. That's what it looks like to give himself for us. That's who he is. That's what he does. It's beautiful. It's stunning. It's incomparable. It's matchless. It's peerless. It's glorious. And we can't add a thing to it. Not a ritual. Not an offering. Not a serve team. Not attendance. Not a check to the fund. Not niceness. Nothing. It's his faithfulness. And his faithfulness then becomes the ground of our trust. You can trust him because he's faithful. You can trust him because he loves you. If someone will bleed for you, you can trust them. If someone will suffer for you, you can trust them. 
And Jesus is the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And when we trust him, we are united to him. And he says, all that I've got, all that's mine is yours, brothers and sisters. And so Paul goes on, because that's the beginning of the Christian life, not the climax of it. And he goes on and begins to explain, like, like once we're forgiven, once we're justified, once God declares that the court finds in our favor, there's more to the story. Verse 19, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, right? I've been joined to Him. That's that union idea. I'm with Him. His death counts for me. The penalty's paid. I've been crucified with Him, and it is no longer I who live, verse 20, but it is Christ who lives in me. And here's the thing. Like, if Christ has joined me to Himself and shared the benefits of His death and resurrection with me and has taken up residence in my body to live His life, what does that mean my life will look like? Will it look like the life of transgression that needed someone to die for me? No. <laughs> It'll look like Jesus. It'll look like Jesus. And that's why we talk so much about Christ-likeness. And that's why we talk so much about embodying His character. Because the point isn't that I know everything. The point isn't that I never forget or never make a mistake. The point is that Jesus has in love given himself for me. And now he's taken my life and filled it up with his love and his character and his being. Like his goodness. And, and that's just supposed to overflow into my family, into my colleagues, into the church, and into my neighbors, and into the nations. All because Jesus was faithful. When I try to add something to that, I gotta get some degrees so people think I'm competent. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta be from the right family. I gotta be from the right town. I gotta go to the right school so that I'm accepted. I detract from the beauty of Christ's gift. When it's Jesus alone, not Jesus and the beauty of his faithfulness is amplified in my life. And he brings his life to bear in my body. And the world sees the one who can take transgressors and make them holy. The one. No one can add. No one can contribute. So there's a little test. How do I figure out if I'm stumbling into Jesus and <laughs> as the problem? It's easy. There's a fill in the blank. God loves me because I show up? Nope. Because I got that degree? Nope. Because of my family name? No. Because I've taught Sunday school for 80 years. Because I've served on all the committees. These are the kinds of things we hear, right? Well, when we go to funerals, well, she served on all the committees. And that's great. 
But God doesn't owe us anything for that. It's important to remember that most of the things we put in the and blank are good things. They're not things we shouldn't do. They're things we should do. <laughs> the thing is, when we attempt to take those things and use them to make God like us, that's when we step into the problem of Jesus and. The solution is the faithfulness of Jesus, the perfect love of Jesus, the unfailing, matchless glory of his self giving love as the single object of my dependency. I can't contribute anything to it. Jesus alone, not Jesus and. Wesley, as many of you will know, was healed from his problem. 1738 was the year, May was the month. We call it his Aldersgate experience. It's familiar to lots of people who are Methodist. If it's new to you, here's how it goes. Wesley had been through this season of just deep anxiety. How can I be assured of God's love for me? He went on missions and ministries, and all of it only made him feel worse. Because none of the things he tried to do gave him a sense of God's perfect love. So he's, at, he's hanging out one night, and some people say, Hey, John, there's a Bible study going on over on Aldersgate Street. Let's go. I'm not in the mood, folks. I just want to stay home and drink my tea. Leave me alone. Like, that's, that's where we are. Now, nope, John, we're doing it. Like it or not, we got to get you out of the house. Let's go. And so they take him along. And he wrote in his journal, I went unwillingly. I didn't want to do it. And they get there, and the Bible study's getting cranked up, and somebody, this shows you how, this has always struck me as how spectacular God's grace is. He says, someone was reading the preface of a commentary. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever read a commentary. My guess is I'm I might be the only one in the room with a few exceptions. But it's not like everybody's just like, ooh, let me get that commentary on Romans and read it. Somebody is reading the pref, not the commentary, the preface to the commentary. And Wesley says, and this is the part everybody remembers, he says, my heart was strangely warmed. There's another thing he says a few minutes later that doesn't get quite as much attention, but is far more important. He says, my heart was strangely warmed. And then he says, I felt I did trust Christ. Christ alone. For the first time in his life, an ordained priest and missionary. For the first time in his life, he trusted Jesus alone. He moved from Jesus and to Jesus alone. And that's when the revival started. That's when England and the Americas began to be set aflame with passion for the gospel and the beauty of God's transforming work in the lives of his people. After God brought Wesley from Jesus and to Jesus alone. And so I wonder what God will do with us when he brings us from that place of self-justification. Here's what I've done to that place of Jesus is my justification. Christ alone. 
We're about to come to the Lord's table. And when we do, you'll have the chance to eat a piece of bread. You'll dip it in a cup and you'll taste. Be reminded that this meal is a practice that embodies the all-sufficient, unfailing, perfect love of Jesus. He doesn't just tell us about his love, he feeds us. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.